Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. In my view, a strategy sets a strategic direction for a country. I think it's important, and we that's why we worked really hard to get it out early in the administration. The lack of you know civility in Washington today is such that people actually don't really want to admit that there are areas of actual bipartisan consensus that run through the document. I think the administration's shift on China being more hard-headed about recognizing the challenges posed by China has much more bipartisan consensus than many might want to admit. It looks to outside observers as though perhaps the president's views on Russia have evolved. How did you reconcile how the national security strategy worked out and its approach to Russia and what you were hearing at the very beginning of the administration as exercising, let's say, caution towards being too hard on Russia? This administration has been incredibly tough on Russia. So I've looked at always actions and those actions and the strategy are very, very consistent. What the Russians have been doing for the past 10 years, some of what we're seeing now over the past year and a half in terms of disinformation, in terms of a sophisticated use of the media and the Internet, these are not things that just arose out of the blue. Welcome to Intelligence Matters. I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell. I should mention that I serve on the board of Raytheon, which sponsors Intelligence Matters. Raytheon has not asked me to host the podcast and is not compensating me in any way for doing so. Our guest today is Dr. Nadia Shadlow, who is currently a senior fellow at Hudson Institute based in Washington, D.C. She was, until April, Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy at the National Security Council, where she worked closely with former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. She was a principal author of the President's National Security Strategy, which lays out the threats and challenges currently facing the country and articulates policy recommendations for dealing with them. Before her time at the White House, she was a senior program officer 
at the Smith Richardson Foundation and a member of the Defense Policy Board. I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Nadia, thank you for joining us today on Intelligence Matters and for agreeing to share some of your insights on your important work and your impressive career. Now, to start with, please tell us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself in the White House as Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy in the Trump administration. Did you have a political connection prior, or were you strictly an academic? How did that all work out? Hi, Sandy. Well, thanks so much for welcoming me to the show. I'm excited to be here and appreciate it. Let's see. I I ended up in the White House, I think, after sort of a a long career in thinking about and working on strategy from inside and outside the government in in different ways. Uh, Early on in my career, I started out in the Defense Department. I was a civilian and started out initially as a career civil servant, worked on issues related to, at the time, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, I became the first country director for Ukraine, Early on in my career, I'd also spent some time as a civilian in the Department of the Army working. um, There's an internship program, which you may have heard of, called the Presidential Management Internship Program that allowed grad students to rotate through different offices in the Pentagon, learn about it, and then maybe end up in a a place where you want to be. So I ended up eventually in OSD policy, which you'll know, but some of the listeners, it's the Office of the Secretary of Defense policy office where a lot of civilian academic types end up. I worked there for several years and then decided that the best thing for me for a bunch of reasons would be to go back to school to pursue a PhD. I ended up doing that in a topic related to military history, looking at how the U.S. Army had had to deal with the problems of political and economic reconstruction during and following wartime. And that ended up being a very pertinent and sort of relevant mm-hmm. topic, although at the time I started it a long time ago. I won't <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me. It, it, was, uh, it was less obvious how relevant that would be in terms of Iraq and Afghanistan. Then I worked for about dur- – during the time that I went to school, I also worked. I worked for an organization called the Smith Richardson Foundation, which was a funder of uh, foreign policy-related research, national security-related research and analysis – So that was really a good opportunity to look at the whole strategic landscape of the geopolitical problems, challenges, and opportunities facing the United States, and thinking about uh, how we could do better at both protecting ourselves from those challenges and threats, but also seizing opportunities as well. Now, you were brought into the White House by H.R. McMaster. Can you tell us how you got to know H.R. and what was it like to work with him in the early days of the Trump administration? Yeah, I got to know HR uh, mainly through my my written through my work in terms of my dissertation and the work I was doing, which was focused, as I said, on the on the U.S. military, but specifically on the U.S. Army and its experiences in economic and political reconstruction. So I wrote a fair amount early on in my career, and he's a big reader. So anyone who knows HR knows he's a big consumer of information and and reading and. Some of my articles had come to his attention. I'm sure a lot of your friends, Sandy, you know, books, uh, Mike O'Hanlon at the Brookings Institution, a lot of the the main defense policy writers that we had supported. So he also knew the work of the foundation. When this opportunity came up to write the national security strategy, I think given my background in in thinking about strategy and writing in identifying and understanding the key issues facing the nation, he asked if I was interested in coming on board. I mean, I'm a Republican, and I was happy to serve for him and, and in the administration. 
Great. Now, Nadia, you're a great story of a young professional coming up through the ranks, and you were given the opportunity of a lifetime for that kind of a, of a career path, uh, crafting the national security strategy of the United States. Who wouldn't dream of being able to do that? Any academic or policy expert would would absolutely crave that opportunity. Can you give our listeners a sense for what you thought of as a national security strategy? Why do we need one? How does it differ from policy, strategy from policy in your view, as you looked at this problem? Yeah, it was it was a wonderful opportunity, and I was honored to be able to do it. I was um, relied on a lot of my friends, you know, f- for that. I mean, there are a lot of smart people out there. I was fortunate over the years uh, to know so many of them. So it was a perfect opportunity to take some of the best ideas and capture them in this document. In my view, a strategy sets a strategic direction for a country. I think it's important, and we that's why we worked really hard to get it out early in the administration. It's important for setting a direction, for identifying priorities, for bringing people on board to pursue a, a certain path so that you actually implement and achieve things, you know, by the end of the administration. So a strategy sets the foundation for the kinds of policies you then uh, develop in further detail. I think there's always a balance in a strategy between how much detail you actually have in the document versus how the specifics of policy, I think, you know, bias, but I think we did a good job in that balance. Uh, We identified sets of specific actions, but left the details and the nuts and bolts of the policy making to the experts in the departments and agencies. So, Nadia, critics of national security strategies in general suggest that those strategies have become more of a rhetorical exercise and, you know, rather than a practical document that informs congressional appropriators and helps them align budgets with policies and helps the Pentagon craft its own strategy. Do you feel like this was different or is that unfair criticism? Because I went through the same thing. I think it's a bit of unfair criticism. I think everyone in Washington likes to criticize everyone else. I think there's a great utility in the process of, of strategy making. There's that famous quote, which I'll get wrong. I think it's Eisenhower who essentially said, you know, what's as important is the process itself, is the planning. And I think that there is, that's very much the case in Washington where to get anything done, you need to bring people on board. You need to be somewhat collaborative. You need to you know, make your arguments about why you want to pursue a certain path. And I think strategy making helps that. You know, I'm not sure if in terms of your experiences at the Pentagon, if you found that. I think there's a lot in this document which has, you know, is now being implemented. The the lack of, you know, civility in Washington today is such that people actually don't really want to admit that there are areas of actual bipartisan consensus that run through the document and then we're seeing now are being implemented on the Hill, everything from the BUILD Act, which is an important new piece of legislation, bipartisan, which will help investments in fragile states and help investments in infrastructure around the world by creating incentives for American companies to go in and do more investments. It's related to OPEC, our Overseas Private Investment Corporation. That's just one example. I think the administration's shift on China being more hard-headed about recognizing the challenges posed by China has much more bipartisan consensus than many might want to admit. So I think throughout the the defense budget, the, the um, you know all of that is consistent. What's identified in the strategy is consistent with the national defense strategy. We worked very closely with Secretary Mattis and his team. So let's talk a little bit about that process 
This is actually, as you point out, the first administration to get an NSS out in its inaugural year. For somebody who is familiar with Washington bureaucracy, that's a remarkable feat. How did you pull that off? And was there a lot of pressure inside the White House to get that done in a short amount of time? I think I was fortunate because I had a lot of autonomy. So I think those uh, those who work in bureaucracies know that that's really critical. I had the support of my principals, General McMaster, but above him as well. You know, they wanted me to get this done and they would empower me to do so. And that's important. I had autonomy in that by having the pen and by just sitting down and working and writing and developing good relationships with so many people around the bureaucracy, but also, you know, I have a wide Washington network. So I was able to, people were responsive to me, which was nice. So I had the right conditions, which allowed me to be uh, successful. So the opposite side of autonomy, which is is a nice thing to have because you can get things done quickly, is the collaborative approach. And certainly there are a lot of stakeholders in the interagency who would want a voice in this document, including State Department, Defense Department, Intelligence Community, Treasury, and many others. How did you, or or even did you, pull them into that process? Yeah, we, we definitely pulled them into the process. From the start, we had meetings, what are called PCCs. These are policy coordinating committees. Uh, essentially, it meant that we got people together periodically to talk about all the issues and challenges and you know, threats, opportunities, all of the substance of the document. We got everyone together quite often. I had very much of an open door, sort of open phone policy. People called me all the time with their concerns. Um, there was an iterative drafting process. I'd send, you know, language out to State Department. Are you okay with this? They'd send language back. It didn't mean that I had to take all the changes, which goes back to autonomy, but it did mean that there was a constant flow of communication. Uh, so I was lucky. In some ways, my job was easier than my colleagues at DOD who had, you know, 25, 26 people sort of ostensibly working on the national defense strategy. And me and my small team would walk into their office and feel a little bit overwhelmed because you'd have this whole room full of, of uniforms and civilians and feeling a little bit daunted about our ability to get our strategy done first, because that was also the clear direction, both from the White House, but also from, you know, Secretary Mattis's office. They wanted the NSS out first to serve as an umbrella document. But but we did it. I mean, it didn't mean that it didn't mean that I took all the changes, but we considered all of the uh, all of the changes. In fact, we sent out portions of the document in PDF form so that people couldn't go in and do line in line out edits. And I was pretty, pretty strong about that, that we would take content edits, but not line in line out edits. Now, of course, some departments and agencies went to the trouble of turning the PDF back into an actual Word document so they could make changes. The digital age. <laughs> yeah, it was the, so. uh, you got to love that. Yeah. So you, you referred to we. Was there a core writing team? Did you have two or three you know, close collaborators on this? Can you give us a sense for who those people were? Yeah, there was a diplomatic historian in my office, Seth Center, an Army colonel, uh, Stephanie Ahern. There was a, a Ph.D. physicist, Sean Kirkpatrick, so we all worked on different different parts of the document. And then later, more people came in as well. You know, different, we, we relied on different offices. There were the drafters. I mean, the Asia Directorate office, Matt Pottinger and Fiona Hill and Lisa Curtis and the directors on the NSC who headed the different regional and functional directorates worked and provided inputs to us as well on the functional side too. The counterterrorism people 
who had so there was a whole a whole range of people and again it was it was quite collaborative can you give us a sense for the president's participation in this process did you have a lot of personal face time with him or was it was it more of a, you know pushing it up the chain and and he was given generic briefings on it you know how how much of an imprint did he actually have on the guidance you received he had a huge imprint on it i mean essentially if you look at the document which is structured around Four, we call them the four pillars, but four core American, American national interests, protecting the homeland, promoting prosperity, preserving peace through strength, and advancing American influence. And if you look at the president's speeches, both before he took office and in the early part of his administration from January through the spring, you'll see uh, very much the, in, you know, the integration of the, spe- the ideas in the speeches, the philosophy in the speeches, and the document those four interests and the structuring of the document around those interests were determined early on between him and General McMaster on some of the early trips that the president took. We prepared briefings for the plane. For those who've served in the White House, I think plane time is always good time to get things done. Sometimes it can be a little bit more flexible with the principal's schedule. So uh, those moments were used by General McMaster and others to get things in front of the president in terms of the, of the strategy document and decisions that we needed. I personally br- briefed the president on the structure of the document and on some of the key ideas to ensure that they were aligned with uh, what he wanted. He referred to the document as he made the speech, I think it was at NDU, uh, right in December of um, 2017, a couple days or the day of its launch or a couple days after so there was a lot of interaction, a lot of interaction also with his speechwriters as well. So the organization of an NSS, a lot of different ways to approach that problem. You settled on on the four pillars, as you mentioned, and you mentioned that that happened early on. But was that something that actually came in at the very beginning of the process, or did you have to spend time looking at various different options for how to organize it and then quickly settled on those four pillars? I think it's more the latter. I mean, I think you can spend a lot of time. There are all different ways to organize a document, as you, as you said, and I think you can spend a lot of time, and this is where a bureaucracy can sometimes become all-consuming, weighing every option. There's no right way. I think focusing specifically on America's core national interests and how we would set out in protecting and ensuring the advancement of those interests that that was a decision we made early on. And that also, I think, helped in getting it done relatively quickly because we went in with a strong sense for how we would organize it. And then the challenge became the content. So it's sometimes hard to see history when you're actually living through it. Many people out there, including me, believe there's an ongoing struggle between the defenders of what some would call the international order, what I like to call a global operating system, and what one might call counter-globalists, populists, or nationalists. Both sides are very passionate about their arguments. One side says the global system has kept us prosperous and secure for seven decades and that when America leads like-minded nations, the world's a safer place. The other side says we've sort of been deeply taken advantage of by other countries and that global institutions really only limit our freedom of action. From the outside, this debate seems to have been represented by a couple of different factions potentially inside the White House with Uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Chief of Staff John Kelly, HR, and the latter by perhaps Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller. Without getting into personalities and politics, how do you feel about that question? And how did you manage through those different views to produce a document the president would actually sign? I think that the documents organized, the big dichotomy in the document is between 
free and open societies and repressive and authoritarian regimes. And essentially, the document talks about what we need to do to ensure that free and open societies prevail. I think it it identifies how some of those uh, post-World War II institutions have actually been changed. The character of those institutions have been changed by societies in which which do not value openness and freedom. So I think it was it was a, it wasn't a rejection of those institutions, but it was saying that in order to strengthen the qualities in those institutions and the features of those institutions that actually advantage a free and open societies, we need to shift the way that we're approaching them and the way that you know we're pursuing our foreign policy interests. So I think it actually you know, struck a, a practical balance between between those two, you know, I, I think it was a little bit more of a sense that we need to strengthen the elements of those institutions that actually protect open and free societies and advance open and free societies, which means in some cases we have to call out the bad actors that have been manipulating and changing those institutions. And I think that's something that Nikki Ambassador Nikki Haley did very well at the U.N., it's hard to say that the UN Human Rights Commission hasn't been corrupted by countries like Iran, you know, on the council. So so would it be fair to recapture what you're saying in terms of it wasn't the international order itself that was bad. It's what it has evolved into over time that has, has not been as valuable as when it was first crafted by our forebears after World War II. Well, it, it's how you advance. It's it's. I think you made an important point. I think uh, when you were asking the question, it's like-minded states. It's a community of like-minded democratic states. Whose international order? Russia's international order? China's international order? They're different definitions depending upon where you stand. So I think the debate that we've been having uh, over the past year and a half in Washington and elsewhere has actually been a healthy one to force people to kind of look at those questions in a hard-headed way. You know, what institutions have not changed or reformed or been updated since 1945? It's hard to think of American businesses. They don't look the same. The U.S. military doesn't look the same. Many of our, you know, many institutions have changed and evolved over time. So it's a fresh look at the nature of that order. So one of the hot button buzzwords or phrases that's come out throughout this process is America first. And on the one hand, anyone working a strategy in any country would say, of course, one's own national interests will always come first. Any country would say that. But the phrase sort of took on a more pointed context during the election campaign and the inauguration speech and all that. How did you work through that? Did you have to concern yourself with whether that phrase would find itself in the document and, and to get the context the way you wanted to see it expressed? Or how, how did that go through your mind as you went through this? I think I essentially, by looking at what I always saw that it meant, which was that how do you advance America's interest and values and how do you keep that front and center? And because those interests and values are actually consistent with the interests and values of our democratic and you know friends and allies, I saw it as consistent. And I think we treated it in a very straightforward way, which is how do you ensure that the United States is not uh, disadvantaged and how do you ensure that our interests and values are advanced You know, through these sometimes through the institutions, but looking at actual set of outcomes as well. So I think we were more skeptical of process for the sake of process. I think there was more pressure, I think a necessary pressure to look at outcomes. Are we getting the outcomes that we're seeking? Are there reasons why 
working through these institutions or in the old ways of doing business are necessary? Are they achieving the outcomes that we want to see? So it's a completely fresh look, I think, in terms of looking at outcomes as opposed to an emphasis on process for the sake of process, which sometimes I think institutions can default to. Nadia, you grew up at the beginning of your career in Soviet studies. So you probably have as good an understanding of certainly the Soviet Union and probably the evolution of, of Russia and the Russian Federation since then. It looks to outside observers as though perhaps the president's views on Russia have evolved over time since he's been in office, beginning perhaps a little bit more collegial or friendly towards, for, towards President Putin and the like, and maybe as time has, has passed with poisonings in the U.K. and some of the other behaviors. How did you reconcile how the national security strategy worked out and its approach to Russia and what you were hearing at the very beginning of the administration as exercising, let's say, caution towards being too hard on Russia? Right. Well, I always saw, I never had a problem with speaking. I mean, the idea of speaking to leaders, whether or not you like them or don't like them, um, and keeping lines and channels of communication open, I think, is is perfectly fine. I think, actually, there's always been a kind of a debate in America, both on the right and the left and whatever party you're from, about the value of that communication, right? Does, does communicating signal a softness? Sometimes the right, uh, you know, sort of Republicans in this country, the center-right, is skeptical of communication, while center-left tends to be more pro-communication. But I think overall, uh, I'm, I'm someone who believes you should always keep, you know, lines of communication open, especially with two nuclear powers. This administration has been incredibly tough on Russia. So I've looked at always actions, and those actions and the strategy are very, very consistent I mean, the global Magnitsky Act has targeted more Russian oligarchs than in the past. The this, the incident of the poisoning in, in the U.K. and the orchestrated effort after that, in which the U.S. played a very big role, the White House played a very big role in working to ensure that, you know, I don't know how many countries in the end all made the announcement on that Monday, but it was well over 20 countries in tandem with our U.K. allies. We've been tough on, I mean, the Syria problem with Russia is very, very tough, but we've been tough on the Russians, calling them out, calling them out for supporting an Assad regime that has used chemical weapons against its own people. So I think this problem, again, has been incredibly politicized. But if you look over time, what the Russians have been doing for the past 10 years, some of what we're seeing now over the past year and a half in terms of disinformation, in terms of a sophisticated use of the media, and the internet, these are not things that just arose out of the blue. They, the Russians have been honing this, you know, this skill set for a long time in Europe, as you know, probably from, you know, when you were in the, in the Pentagon. So the NSS that you finally rolled out in December of uh, last year has gotten pretty good marks, I would say. It's also, uh, I would argue, had a pretty good thread through the administration, just from my own knowledge of how the Defense Department has used it to develop its own national defense strategy. Can you give us a sense for what is actually common and different between this administration's national security strategy and its predecessors? And I use that in plural. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, this NSS identifies a great power competition as being a key feature of the geopolitical environment. I think, and it says it clearly and explicitly. So this NSS is, is written in a way for the American people, not necessarily for 
the bureaucracy as a whole, the government, you know, infrastructure as a whole, or our allies and partners and friends. We wrote it in a straightforward, understandable way so that the American people could understand what's at stake, what the geopolitical landscape looks like, and how America needs to, to shift its approach in, in key ways. It has essentially five themes that I think differentiate, differentiate it from past strategies. Uh, the first is sovereignty and relooking essentially at what the nation state is best suited to solve in terms of problem sets versus international institutions. The idea of sovereignty is also closely linked to democracy, which I think sometimes, again, in this politicized debate, we're not talking about. Democracy begins with sovereign states, right? You can't really have democracy through big global institutions where you don't have a vote for them. And this is what we're seeing in Europe. and We're seeing some of the problems and debates. Uh, second, it's, I would say, an unabashedly confident document. It doesn't apologize for America. Uh, it says, you know, we're not a perfect nation, but we're probably the best nation in the world. We're the most generous nation in the world in terms of the giving we give both government and individuals. So it's a confident document. That confidence allows us to compete. So a key theme throughout the document is competition. Competition is taking place um, along the economic, political, and military spheres, all accelerated by technology. Some competitors are better than others across all four planes. So uh, it, it identifies China as one, being pretty good at all four planes. Russia's competing as well, more in the political, military domains. And uh, it also seeks to catalyze, right? So part of the America not being able to do everything in the world, we can't pay for everything in the world, but we can catalyze change. So I think those are sort of some key themes that run through the document that do differentiate it from past documents. So it's understandable that a nation in the wake of a 911-like event would be deeply wounded and that that you know, counterterrorism piece could actually consume the country for almost two decades. And equally, it would seem natural that a new national security strategy, a new team, would come in and take a broader look and, and see that great power competition as you did. And by the way, I would I would maybe compliment HR because here's a here's a person who was steeped in counterinsurgency and lived that for you know most of his career and was able to sort of pull out of that and, and get into the great power competition thing. So I want to ask you a question. The document says that we're going to have to rethink the policies of the past two decades policies based on the assumption that engagement with rivals and their inclusion in international institutions and global commerce would turn them into benign actors and trustworthy partners. That's a really important conclusion. So as you think about that and replay the tape from not only two decades ago, but even further back, are there things that you would have seen us do differently, for example, in how we welcomed China into the world and the World Trade Organization and opened them up to the West should we have done that or should we have done it differently in a way that would not have led to the kind of competition that we're having right now? Or was it inevitable? I'm not sure about the initial negotiations that went back and forth on, on the WTO with China. But I think, you know, it's Americans' natural tendency to say countries, people are likely over time to become more like us, right? This is just sort of we're optimists and we, we're a successful society. We know what makes a successful society in terms of openness, uh, support for entrepreneurs, freedom, everything that we have in this country. I think we should have looked with more hard-headed realism at what was unfolding over time. So I think essentially we've seen that countries haven't 
necessarily moderated their behavior, but have often taken advantage of the openness of our institutions and our approach. So I think this document at least sets out a warning to say, hey, we don't want to be disadvantaged anymore. We don't want to be taken advantage of. And so we want to step back a little bit and and, um, and just be more hard-headed about, about how countries change and evolve and don't change. Okay, so sort of as a wrap-up here, let's take a look back and a look forward. To look back, the National Security Strategy was unveiled almost a year ago. You left the White House in April of 2018. I'm sure you must keep in touch with HR, and even though you wouldn't want to speak for him, as you look back over the last year, how do you think it's played out? Has it, has it done its job? Has the world sort of corresponded with what you were talking about on the strategy? Is there anything you would do differently in the strategy now that you've had a chance to sort of step back and look at it? I think it's un- I think it's unfolding across the four pillars, you know, in, in various ways. I think because we had a collaborative process, departments and agencies are actually working. The Department of Energy is working hard on the energy dominance parts of the portfolio. The Department of Defense um, is a key player, and obviously, looking at our our military, uh, what our force structure should look like, where that uh, increased spending should go. We're looking at the the pillar that involved advancing American influence, giving a hard-headed look at some of the international institutions and whether or not they're achieving the outcomes that we hope they achieve, right? Looking at outcome-based metrics. The Homeland Security pillar, there's obviously, um, you know, a lot going on right now on immigration, on missile defense, which we also consider there. So I think, uh, you know, across the four pillars, if you look at the priority actions, I think a lot actually is underway. I don't think I would change. I actually don't think I would change the document. I think the important part now is implementation. So, you know, if if given the opportunity, I think the key now is to work with departments and agencies on implementation to recognize that, you know, the White House doesn't really control implementation. Anyone who's worked in Washington knows, you know, you're just it's a small group of people there and the departments are much bigger. They have the resources, the money, the people. And so implementation is really important now if you actually want to see sustainable change. I should also mention that in addition to the national security strategy, we developed um, several uh, what we called integrated strategies regionally. So a strategy on Iran, strategy on Russia, specific strategy on China, as well as functional areas uh, too. And those are underway, you know, to varying degrees as well. So as you look forward and the nation sort of steps into an, an uncertain future, what is it that in a macro sense that worries you the most? I'm not talking about conflict with, with Yemen or North Korea or something, but more of a, a structural sense of what is it that keeps you awake at night as we move forward further into the 21st century, Nadia? I mean, in a macro sense, I think, you know, the, this evolving relationship with China is obviously a huge issue and has implications for all sectors of our economy. But I think overall, our inability as a nation to get things done, you know, quickly, the institutional kind of rigidity, the bureaucratic sclerosis makes it very, very hard for the United States to compete, to adapt, to change, to update. So we have incredibly smart people in our government, in our private sector, all around this country with incredibly good ideas. Everyone recognizes that the pace of change is accelerating, and it's very hard for us to get things done (laughs) as a nation. 
And uh, that actually worries me. And that seems maybe like a process-oriented answer, but I do think it's critical to achieve the outcomes we need, whether it's quickly training people so that they can adapt to how technology has changed the nature of their jobs, to updating our curriculums in schools quickly, to, you know, to deploying people quickly to places in fragile states to maybe offset a potential conflict or an incident. I mean, anyone who's worked for the government uh, knows how hard it is to get things done. Public-private partnership continues. The private sector gets frustrated whenever, you know, if they need the government for some reason to be supportive of them, it's very hard for them as well. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it's a shock or if it's a gradual evolution that enables us to potentially offset the, the, that sort of sclerosis that you're talking about. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for your time and insight. We really appreciate you coming in to talk to our audience. You really gave us a good inside glimpse on what it's like to write an incredibly important and often underappreciated document. So thank you so much for your service, and we wish you the best in the future. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the show very much. Thanks so much, Sandy. You bet. That was Dr. Nadia Shadlow. I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell. Thanks for listening. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.